Hi, Zaz. Hi. <laughs> Lovely to see you again. Welcome back. Welcome to the next episode of the Brio in the Box podcast. Coming to you from... Should we tell people where we are? Let's do it. We are in our walk-in closet yeah. in our bedroom right yeah. now. Um, sometimes people ask us, where is that? Where is your little podcast studio? Yeah. Our, our bed is literally right there. We sold all of our clothes <laughs> and we took it all out and just yeah. made it David made, it made our closet look nice. He took everything off the walls, yeah. made it look cool in here. But yes, we are in our walk-in closet. Yeah. Very VIP. Very fancy. Yes. Joe Rogan does the same thing. Yeah, totally. From his bedroom. Um, today, we're going to talk about performance enhancers mm-hmm. and wearables. Yeah. Things that can enhance performance. So when I say performance enhancers. Most people think like, like drugs. The, like the illegal ones. Yeah. Like the ones that get people banned from sports. So let's yeah. start there. Yeah. Um, PEDs, we'll call them the things athletes get tested for. Yeah. Um, and not all of them are actually illegal. Yeah. Sometimes people call them like, oh, like illegal drugs. Not necessarily. If you're ever an athlete subject to doping control, you have to be super careful. You can get a doping violation for like a cold medicine you bought at Shoppers Drug Mart. Like a few athletes said they got busted for an energy drink that they got out of a vending machine at the venue. Yeah. That happened to um, a team, CrossFit 808 out of Hawaii one year. Mm -hmm. Their whole team got disqualified from the CrossFit Games because one person tested positive for a stimulant yeah that was in an energy drink they bought at the venue so you have to be very careful super nitro 4000 <laughs> yeah, <whatever it> <sighs> um so the big ones i think if people think of peds they think of like the steroids yeah things that make you big and strong testosterone growth hormone yeah that stuff kind of like stuff that. and here's the thing the reason they're banned is because they were yeah um but the overall theme of this conversation is that like there's no free lunch like yeah. everything comes at a cost so abusing steroids increases your risk of injury. People are more prone to bone and tendon injuries because their muscles get stronger faster than their structure can mm-hmm. keep up. Um, abusing things like testosterone increases risk of cardiovascular disease, um, can cause overgrowth of like your organs. Growth hormone can, can cause like yeah, um, that big belly bone thing. growth and the big belly. And yeah. so it's hard on your organs and stuff. There does seem to be um, a common theme of like powerlifters, bodybuilders that die prematurely. They'll die like 53 of yeah. heart attacks and stuff. And they'll often like, oh, it was a congenital heart defect. Or it was a birth defect. Like, like all of you? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and the thing about it, and this goes along with our theme, is that all of those substances, well, most of those substances in appropriate doses have like medical value, mm-hmm. right? They're used in treatment all the time and they're like mostly safe. It's only because of the whole mentality that more is more and I don't need 150 milligrams of testosterone. I need like 2000 milligrams of testosterone. You know, it's, yeah. it's the, mostly the people that abuse them that mm-hmm. run into troubles. There's a, I just popped into my head. There's a great documentary called Bigger, Stronger, Faster yeah. about performance enhancing drugs. And in there, they kind of address the idea, like these are pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. These are drugs that can be prescribed by a doctor. And they had a purpose when they were developed, which was, um, like muscle wasting, sarcopenia right. and like AIDS patients and that kind of stuff. And that because they got such a bad rap from athletes abusing them that mm-hmm. now patients that need them aren't like doctors are reticent to prescribe them because they feel like, Ooh, there's like this like taboo stigma of like steroids. Yeah. It's like they did have a purpose, but anyway, so if you abuse them comes at a cost, there's ones like what Lance Armstrong popped for is called EPO right. increases the number of red blood cells. So it makes you better at delivering oxygen. So like your cardiovascular stamina conditioning kind of stuff. Um, but it makes your blood thicker. Yeah. So you can, you can die if your blood is too thick. It puts extra stress on your heart from having to pump all this like 
syrupy thick blood around. Um, so that one's actually like quite dangerous because you can, you can like die. Like one dose mixed, messed up can, can kill you. Yeah. Um, so the theme there being like things come at a cost, yeah. right? And the more you abuse it, the more risk there is. For sure. We're not generally here today to talk about all the, the banned substances, yeah. but there's a whole bunch of other performance enhancers that kind of follow the same theme yeah. of like, maybe they have some utility in a certain situation, but too much is, is detrimental. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about like caffeine, creatine, carbohydrate, and then tools like belts, some wearables and tech like heart rate monitors, sleep trackers, yeah. glucose monitors, step counters, like all that kind of stuff. All the gadgets. Yeah. Let's start with caffeine. Yeah. Everybody's favorite neuromodulator. Mm-hmm. Super common. The world's most widely abused drug. Yeah. Fair to say. Absolutely. There's a Starbucks every 10 feet yep. <laughs> because everybody's so hooked on their their caffeine dose. Yep. Most people drink coffee through the day or even people that opt for tea. Mm-hmm. Tea often has caffeine in it as well. And then it's even making its way into like kids products too, right? Yeah. Like pop will have caffeine. Even chocolate has caffeine in it. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's everywhere. Energy drinks, soda, oh tea, caffeine, like all that kind of coffees, I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, it's everywhere. From an athletic performance perspective, caffeine definitely works. For sure. It's one of the few, we'll call it a supplement, with good, clear evidence that it definitely increases performance. Yeah. It increases like just energy output, Mm -hmm. um, decreases your sensation of pain. So like that you're sprinting on a bike and your muscles are burning. Caffeine um, decreases your sensitivity to the like pain of that kind of stuff. Um, But again- a little bit can have a place. It can have utility. It can enhance performance. Yep. But if you're like, okay, well, if a little bit is good, then a lot must be great. Yeah. Mm, no. <laughs> yeah. With all these things, there's going to be a point of diminishing marginal returns. For sure. So you like start getting into high doses and you're just like tweaked out and you're like shaking and you're vibrating. I remember one poor guy, he did a CrossFit competition for the first time and he thought it was a good idea to buy a pre-workout to get himself all amped up. And this poor kid took three scoops of this stuff. He'd never taken it before in his life. There was like 500 milligrams of caffeine in these, in these three scoops of pre-workout, plus who knows whatever else. And he went out to his first like event and was just buzzing and like almost had to like leave for the day because he was just so messed up afterwards. You know, it was just like completely over the top. Yeah. So there's, that's like an acute almost overdose of caffeine yeah. that, Um, it would increase your performance to a point, but then too much decreases your ability to like focus or concentrate your coordination movements. You get all jittery and, um, decreases your ability to like do work for a long time because your heart rate's probably just like, like through the roof. And then there's like the chronic abuse of caffeine. For sure. So if you're like, oh, studies show that like a 200 milligram dose of caffeine pre-workout increases performance. You're like, I'm going to take 600 milligrams a day. You're like, Mm -hmm. it's going to, it's going to be less effective, right? You're going to build up a tolerance to it. And then it is stimulating um, kind of like your fight or flight response, your stress response. Mm-hmm. So then if you stimulate that all the time, it's a little overdose on the heart, a little yep. stressful on the heart. People with heart conditions are advised to limit their intake of caffeine. Um, and then if you do it too much and all day, then it interferes with your sleep. Mm-hmm. And then if you're not getting a good sleep, then you're not recovering well yep. and all that kind of stuff. Um, you touched on in the one we talked about stress that just from like an anxiety perspective, yeah. you have to be careful with caffeine for sure. Can't overdo I it. I can basically have one coffee in the morning and that's it. And I will supplement with theanine, which helps to like, you know, 
de-stress mm-hmm. um, when it comes to stimulants. Um, because if I do feel like I'm anxious or whatever, I didn't sleep well that day and I, f- I can feel myself getting agitated while I'm drinking my coffee, I'll take theanine to help balance it out. I love coffee, um, but I can only have one in a day. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, if somebody is going to do, like if I'm going to do a CrossFit competition, like if I'm taking caffeine pills every day before I do a workout, it's not going to be much different when I go to do my actual competition. But like for me, I never take caffeine before I work out unless I've had my coffee. If I do take a caffeine pill, like before a competition or before an open workout or something, I'm going to benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just even one, like I don't need a thousand milligrams to, to get that boost. Or if you're taking like 200, 400 milligrams of caffeine before every training session, when you really want to like make use of it, when you're actually like testing something, you got to take so much more. Yeah. You've got kind of like nowhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So there's a point of diminishing marginal returns where sure. more isn't more. So um, yeah, from a caffeine perspective, less is more, mm-hmm. less frequently cut it off by like noon, maybe two o'clock in the day so you can sleep properly. Yeah. And then, yeah, save it for game day. Yeah. But not so much that you've never <laughs> taken before and some pre-wad that makes your eyeballs bug out of your head. Yeah. Uh, another thing that people hate to hear, but doing a tolerance break mm. once in a while is a really good thing. Yeah. You know, if you can like take a week or two where you just don't have any caffeine super hard to do because most people are addicted to caffeine and they wake up and they're just like lethargic and they can't move. And then as soon as they pop their pill or have a coffee or whatever, they're like good to go. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes it's worth it. Just, uh, you know, you got to prove you're still in charge. That's right. You're still the boss of that caffeine. <laughs> you do it cause you want to No, cause you need to. Yeah. I can um, quit at any time. Quit anytime I want guys. Um, and actually, yeah, you, we were just talking about this the other day, quite a number of our 6amers we got on this conversation. Don't drink yeah. coffee or have caffeine before they show up for a 6am workout. So, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think that's probably why they can work out at 6am is because they probably sleep normally yeah, <laughs> and then don't need a lot of caffeine to get up and get going. And they feel, they wake up feeling rested and energetic and yeah, the more natural state, like it should be natural energy. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so from like supplements, you go into Popeye's, you look at the wall of oh, supplements. Man. So many, there's so many, the one with the most, evidence that it definitely enhances performance is creatine. Yeah. Um, definitely increases the amount of work that you can do. So maximum power output, um, has strength benefits. So I guess that that's the same, like a max power in terms of like a one rep max squat, but also like wattage on a bike kind of power output stuff. Yeah. Um, creatine goes into your muscles, creatine phosphate. It's the phosphate donor to help you recycle ATP, ADP into ATP. Um, so it helps you make energy basically in simplest terms. Is it ATP? Is that, is that that DJ? <laughs> ATB? <laughs> yeah. Remember him? No. Oh, my rave days. Mm. Sometimes I'm <laughs> not. Till I come. What does that song? 6am till I come. Remember that song? No, but now I'm going to have to go look it All up right. after. Everybody look up ATB. Maybe we'll interject a little <laughs> clip in here. So everyone's on the bus. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. It's cause I'm so much younger than you. Right. I think. Yeah. You're still in preschool when that song came out. And I was going to the bars. Maybe. <laughs> uh, so back to creatine. <laughs> what? The what? Um, so generally, there was two ways that people would dose creatine. Five grams a day yeah. all the time. Standard. Or um, super loading phases where they would do like 30 grams a day for like five days and then take a break from it. Yeah. That's generally fallen out of favor. That's not really a thing that anybody recommends not really well supported that it provides any further benefit doing it that way. It's pretty well established. You can safely take five grams of creatine 
every day. You don't need to like cycle off of it. There's no tolerance built up to it. Um, the loading phase thing didn't seem to provide any further benefit and it just increased GI upset (laughs) with people. Um, so yeah, it just gives you disaster pants if you take too much. (laughs) You basically need the least effective dose, right? Yeah. Minimum effective dose. That's what you could think of with all these things. Yeah. Creatine comes from red meat. So if you eat a lot of red meat, you probably don't need to supplement with creatine. Um, but if you tend to eat more like chicken and fish and pork and stuff, then maybe there's mm-hmm. some benefit there. Creatine's pretty widely available. It's usually pretty cheap. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like, you know, cost to your pocketbook. Yeah. It's not too bad. And there's lots of different types of creatine, but I think the general consensus is creatine monohydrate, mm-hmm. just like the most basic type of creatine is, is kind of the best. So yeah, don't feel like you need to be upsold to like the super fancy nitro 4,000 creatine. The shiny label one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody asked me the other day, they said their 13 year old son was wanting to take creatine. They asked me if I thought that was safe. And I said, yeah, I don't see any reason why it would be dangerous for a kid. Um, there's no like stress on the kidneys. It's not a stimulant. It's not going to interfere with any kind of like growth or hormones or signaling. It is going to, you know, increase their power output in their sport that they play. Yeah. Um, it'll help a little bit. And I, I don't see much risk to like a five grams a day. Yeah. Um, it's well researched and yeah. it used to be that they would recommend cycling it and they wouldn't recommend everybody taking it. And now mm-hmm. it's pretty much like, man, this stuff's really not going to like hurt anybody, yeah. which means it's going to work, but it's probably not going to do that much because yeah. generally as soon as something has a huge effect, that's when they start to ban it. Right? <laughs> yeah. As soon as something works too good, then they just pull it off the list. Yeah. Creatine's still on the list. It's probably pretty safe to mm-hmm. supplement. Yeah. So when we're talking about performance benefits, we're talking about like two to 5% yeah. increases in performance, which, you know, at the Olympic level, that's the difference between first place sure. and last place. Um, for an average person in the gym day to day, would you notice a huge difference? Uh, probably not. hundred pound back squat versus 102 pound back squat. Mm-hmm, maybe. The other reason people like creatine in the bodybuilding world is because it pulls water into your muscles. So it makes you look a little bit more full, a little yeah. more pumped. So. But some people say it'll make you look puffy too. Yeah. It, I've, I remember like doing it a long time ago and I would like gain five pounds mm-hmm. as soon as I started taking it. And then as soon as I stopped taking it, I would just lose that five pounds. And it's it was all water. All water, right? Yeah. So. Um, fun fact about creatine. Vegetarians, vegans and vegetarians are deficient in creatine because they don't eat red meat. Um I saw a randomized control trial where they did IQ tests on vegans and vegetarians and then Uh had one group supplement with five grams of creatine a day for 30 days. And they increased their score on the IQ test by 20 points. Wow. So if you think that your diet doesn't have an effect on the functioning of your brain, it absolutely does. Yeah. So even back to our, you know, 13 year old example, maybe a little bit more creatine, especially if the kid's not great at eating meat. Uh, might actually help their performance at school. Mm-hmm. Tension focus. There you go. In your brain too. So creatine, eh, less is more. Five yeah. grams a day. No need to do the super loading thing. Yep. Not beneficial and just going to make you poop your pants. <laughs> so there's a slew of other supplements and we're not going to get into each one specifically. Yeah. Generally speaking, like there's not a lot of concrete evidence on a lot of the supplements on whether they like work or not. Mm-hmm. Um, if nothing else, if you feel better when you take one of those things or you feel like it helps you or whatever, it might just be placebo effect, but placebo effect is a tremendous thing. It can have a huge uh, effect on people. So if you like taking BCAs when you're working out or, you know, for whatever reason you think the HMB or the whatever helps you, then great, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, it's probably not doing any harm. Um, Yeah. The placebo placebo effect is real. Yeah. And if you can leverage it to your advantage. For sure. Awesome. Whatever. Um, 
Let's talk about carbs. Good old carbs. Next. One of my favorite topics. Talk about carbs a lot. There's so, I mean, there's a lot going on there and there's so much like misunderstanding and misinformation right. in the world of carbohydrates. It's no secret. I'm a low carb advocate. Been following a ketogenic diet for like five and a half years. That's all my information and stuff. But I'm also not like a hundred percent anti-carbohydrate. Like right. I don't deny there is research that shows that giving you know, pure glucose to athletes in the middle of like a high power output test will increase performance. It yep. does. And again, you know, we're talking about statistically significant increases in performance of like a few percentage points right. or maybe lasting slightly longer on a time to fatigue test or something, but it works for yep. sure. Um, but again, with this theme of like, just because a little bit once in a while does increase performance, we should not extrapolate that, oh, therefore we should eat a lot all the time, Yeah, <laughs> right? There's a huge difference between this acute dose and chronic abuse yeah. of something. Or even not even the chronic abuse, just like the amount in one. I will mm-hmm. use this as the perfect reference. Uh, in an episode of The Office, Michael Scott was going to run a fun <laughs> run 10K race and ate an entire bowl of fettuccine Alfredo moments before starting said race. <laughs> and spoiler alert, it didn't help. It yeah. made things a lot worse. So yes, you can use carbs to your benefit, but it's not like you need to eat a bowl of spaghetti right before you do something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the whole where that carbohydrate loading thing came from Um, it was a study done actually like quite a long time ago, like the sixties or seventies. And it was on a team of elite rowers, like on water rowing crew. Um, but their protocol was they would fast for three days and then carbohydrate load. People usually miss that first part. What everybody seems to conveniently ignore is the fasting period. So what they're going for there is called super compensation. So they completely deplete their glycogen levels and then they replete and you can get a little bit of, of a, of a bump above baseline. You can get your muscles to retain a bit more glycogen, but that only works if you were ever glycogen depleted in the first place. Right. Most people, and like that sort of carbohydrate loading thing comes from the world of runners, um, endurance athletes and stuff. If you're eating carbs every day and, you know, eating your goos and gels in the middle of your training events, you were never glycogen depleted. So there's no, no benefit to carbohydrate loading other than you're going to be in the lineup for the bathroom during your race because <laughs> <laughs> you ate so much gluten at the past dinner. <laughs> um, so where can carbs fit in to your advantage? Whatever carbs you do choose to incorporate into your um, regular dietary habits, try to position them ideally right after mm-hmm. your workouts because presumably you've depleted some glycogen and then you're going to replenish right then. So if you're like, oh, I just really like bananas. I just really like rice plan to put that for enjoyment purposes. The best timing of that is after a workout. Um, some people find it beneficial to have carbs before they work out. And those are generally people that have poor metabolic flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, people that have, um, diminished their ability to run on their own stored fuels. They're not good at mobilizing their own energy. And so therefore they need a constant supply of external energy. So some people will need to, to supplement carbohydrate before they work out very long events. There's some benefit to intra workout carbohydrate, but we're talking about like over 90 minutes kind of thing, which is like, we almost never do that in CrossFit. If you don't choose to incorporate carbs into your, into your life much like a ketogenic diet or periods of fasting, interestingly enough, you will replenish your muscle glycogen within about 24 hours. You'll do it endogenously. Um, 
there's a super interesting study. It's called FASTER, F-A-S-T-E-R, capital letters, um, where they took long-term keto-adapted endurance athletes, ultra runners and stuff, and versus high-carb athletes, and they brought them into the lab, and they did a whole bunch of tests. It's super interesting, um, including muscle biopsies, which is like, that's a gnarly thing. They stab a big needle yeah. into your quad muscle, and they pull out like a core sample of your muscle. It's painful. <laughs> gross. And uh, it's gross and painful. And they managed to recruit all these nerds that were willing to participate and, and like have muscle biopsy samples taken. So average length of a very low carb diet was 20 months. So these were long-term keto adapted athletes. Interestingly enough, their glycogen levels between the two groups of athletes were identical mm. at the start. So you would think these guys haven't eaten carbs in like years. Yeah. They must be glycogen depleted. Actually, no. Interestingly enough. Um, and then glycogen levels at the end of, I think they did a three hour uh, treadmill run test. The glycogen levels of the low carb athletes were higher. They still had more stored carbohydrate left on board um, than the than the high carb athletes because they were better at using their fat. They were right. better at oxidizing fatty acids and they were oxidizing fat at like double the rate. The physiology, the physiology textbooks even thought was possible. Mm. They thought the upper limit was a gram per minute. And these guys were hitting two grams per minute of fatty acid oxidation. Um, so that was interesting. Yeah. And then at, they took another muscle biopsy at, I can't remember the time interval if it was one hour or two hours later and two hours later, despite the fact that the high carb athletes had a high carb protein shake after, and the low carb athletes had nothing, the muscle glycogen levels in the low carb athletes were higher hmm. in the recovery at the two hour mark. That's interesting. Yeah. What, and so that study was very groundbreaking. Um, cause it was the first time they'd use long-term ketogenic, like low carb adapted athletes. Every right. other, uh, test out there was like, these people have been on a low carb diet for two weeks or four <laughs> weeks. They're like, fuck yeah, they <laughs> suck without carbs. Then they're going to feel like shit. No yeah. kidding. Um, so this is the first time they managed to do all these tests on long-term hmm. anyway. So that was interesting. Um, but carbs can have their place. I eat some carbs. Like often people think, cause I'm a keto person that I eat zero. Yeah. I don't eat zero carbs. I just don't eat very many. Yeah. I'm um, more of a carb cycler myself. Yeah. I usually go a few days without much at all. And then maybe midweek or definitely mm -hmm. at the end of the week, I'll have some. Yeah. So I think if they're to maintain your sensitivity to carbohydrate, you need to have breaks. Right. So acute or pulsatile. So you can do a little bit of carbs once a day and probably after your workout, 30, 40, maybe 50 grams at most. Mm -hmm. You can do um, two or three days of very low carb and then one day of higher carb. Some people will do very low carb for the whole week and carb up on the weekends. You know, lots of different ways. There just needs to be breaks. Right. Intermittent fasting works yeah. on that basic principle, a break from the burden of, of insulin. Um, if you, the problem is people will go, Oh, like carbs enhance performance. Therefore I should eat 500 grams of carbs a day or 800 grams of carbs a day. Or yeah. this CrossFit games athlete posted that they, you know, eat Snickers and drink Coke. <laughs> like, Therefore I should do that. No. Yeah. Or at the very least understand the risk that you're taking when you do that. Yeah. If you chronically ingest sugar, you're increasing your risk of tendon injury. Your tendons will get glycated being exposed to too much sugar, they get brittle and more likely to like snap. Basically you can overstress your, um, HPA axis, hypothalamic pituitary axis, your like stress hormones. Cause it's stressful to manage high blood sugar all the time. You can give yourself insulin resistance. Female athletes can be vulnerable to uh, PCOS infertility related problems mm -hmm. from polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is 
a disease of insulin resistance. It's a hyperinsulinemic disease, normally affecting overweight diabetic women, but paradoxically enough, can affect very lean, very high-performing women if they're fueling that performance with lots of doses of carbohydrate all the time. Yeah. So you can end up with some hormone stuff. You can end up with some chronic disease stuff. You can even um, endurance athletes have rates of tooth decay that are like three times the normal population. The ones that are relying on goos and gels and Gatorade and stuff all the time. Right. They get gum disease and tooth decay and all that kind of stuff. So like the theme of today is everything comes at a cost. Yeah. And you want to find the minimum effective dose. Right. What's the least amount of carbohydrate you need to eat to support your performance and just your enjoyment of life. Yeah. I did strict carnivore for a whole month, nothing but meat and eggs. And I felt great, performed well. Everything felt good. Digestion was good, all that stuff. I just got a little bored of it. I just like a little more variety and taste and texture. Yeah. I think that like food for the most part needs to be looked at as like fuel, right? But then once in a while it should be enjoyable as well if you're going out for dinner with your friends. You don't want to be that weirdo that brings a lunch kit up to the restaurant or <laughs> been that weirdo. counting <laughs> counting out your, you know, pieces of broccoli or weighing out your steak or something. Like yeah. I think you need to like, yeah, have the balance. But you find the balance by like the majority of the time eating really well. Mm-hmm. And then when you when you need to, you can just enjoy it and splurge, get yeah. a cheesecake or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Once in a while, make it good. Make it, make it worth it. Make it worth it. And I guess that's it. There needs to be some reason that it's worth it. Yeah. We know all the harms of excess carbohydrate or processed food or junk food or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be some reason that the, some benefit that outweighs the harm where you're like, this is a very important, um, like it's a birthday or someone that's important to you. You're going to have a piece of cake or, my grandma cooked these amazing pierogies for me. And of course I'm going to eat the yeah. heck out of them and enjoy it. And that's a time with my grand, like there just needs to be some reason. Yeah. Not just cause you're like, cause I'm bored. <laughs> you know, you're like, that's not a good reason. Yeah. There needs to be some benefit for sure. A little bit of carbs can be fine. I don't track my macros, but I would estimate, I mean, I certainly have a ton in the past. Yeah. I live in the 30 to 50 grams per day range. Yeah. I think if you're, like lean and like good muscle mass and working at intensity, you could probably stay in ketosis, like stay ketogenic. I bet some athletes could push 70 to hundred grams of carbs a day mm-hmm. and still be producing ketones and getting the benefit of that yeah. too. That's that metabolic flexibility. You can use either. Yep. Back and forth. You just got to spend the time to actually build that metabolic flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. That takes time. Um, and again, if you abuse the carbohydrate system all the time, you ruin your metabolic flexibility, you ruin your ability to use fat yep. to that super high level like those athletes in the faster study yeah um okay let's move on let's talk about belts okay this has been like a hot topic it has lately yes weightlifting belts weightlifting belts so what's the point of a weightlifting belt well it definitely on a one rep max basis up wearing a belt properly mm-hmm. can increase the amount of weight you can lift in like a deadlift and squat would probably be the two yeah clean and jerk um People don't generally wear a belt to snatch, but pretty common to clean and jerk. Yeah. Deadlift squat. The big, the big lifts, the big heavy ones, the compound movements. Yeah. And it's generally because for most people, not all people, but for most people, their core strength gives out before their leg strength is Mm -hmm. done. Right. So the belt helps to, you know, keep the core where you need it to be or just strengthen the core. The problem is, is if you only ever wear a belt 
you're always training your legs. So they're going to continue to get stronger and you're not really training your core because you're relying on your belt. And mm -hmm. so you continue to exacerbate that problem. Your legs get stronger and your core stays weaker. And that core will always be the limiting factor in how much weight you can move. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, just because a little bit is beneficial sometimes in mm -hmm. certain situations, you go, I'm stronger when I wear my belt. Therefore, I'm going to wear my belt for everything all the time. Yeah. You're like, ah, shit. Now you actually made yourself weaker. Yeah. And like many of the other things we've mentioned, you made yourself more vulnerable to injury because your core is so weak, but your legs are so strong. Now you're going to hurt yourself like lifting the wheelbarrow in your yard or something yeah. stupid when you're not paying attention or picking up your kid off the floor um, because you've weakened your core. I think if you've ever had the situation where you had to wear a cast like on your leg or something and you wear that cast for six weeks and then you take it off and you can see visible muscle atrophy mm -hmm. because that that joint, those bones were supported externally instead of by the muscles themselves and they shrink, they get weak, they go away. <laughs> they yeah. look visibly smaller than the other ones. So the role of the belt needs to be the little cherry on top. You treat yeah. yourself to the belt once in a while when you're testing a max. Um, my rule is over 90%. I don't yeah. take out my belt till I'm over 90%. For sure. And I have been through periods of my back being very messed up between um, a lot of heavy Olympic weightlifting training in those years and two pregnancies and babies that came out the front. Yeah. <laughs> so my core is not great. But I... I try not to band-aid that situation. I try to address that yeah. situation. So, And I think a lot of people have gotten to the point now where they're, they're so reliant on their belt without even noticing that like they start warming up and they throw on the belt. Mm -hmm. So for those people, you can't just instantly go no belt and assume you're going to be able to do everything you could with the belt. The same weights and you, stuff, yeah. Your legs, are gonna your legs are perfectly fine, but you need to now strengthen your core. So if somebody wants to get off the belt or, or not be so reliant on the belt. You need to take a big step back with the weights that you're using. What I've tried to do, cause I used to be super heavy on the belt for a lot of stuff is I try not to use it until my last set. So I try to pick the weights I'm going to use so that I'm training my core and I can feel my core is the weak spot for sure. Mm -hmm. But then when I get to that last set, if I have a belt, I'll maybe throw it on. Sometimes I will, sometimes I won't, depending on what we're doing. Um, and it, it just, it, such a treat you know yeah. you put it on you're like holy shit and that last one feels so good right yeah but i'm still working on training my core because i'm struggle busting the whole time trying to get through those heavier sets without the belt but i didn't just start with no belt mm -hmm. you know i like took the time to back it off and like use lighter weights and focus more on like how difficult it felt in my mm -hmm. in my back than in the legs and like one of the three guiding principles we have on the wall says make good choices sure. and that reflects that the way that we coach and the way that we approach things is like, we're trying to, we're in this for the long term. We yeah. want people to be able to do CrossFit forever. We need to be able to do CrossFit into your eighties. Kind of what sparked the, the sort of belt discussion or debate was one day we were deadlifting and I was like, okay, I want like a warm up set at like 30%, like super light of your deadlift. We were just like practicing some things. And I saw a few people like digging into the bag, pulling out the belt. And I went, what? Like, yeah, no way. There's no way on earth you need to be wearing a belt for a, a deadlift at 30% of a one rep max. And they're like, yeah. well, what if my back hurts? I'm like, if you have back pain at 30% of your one rep max deadlift, you need to be not deadlifting. You need yeah. to be addressing that pathology that's going on in there. Why does it hurt? What's wrong with your movement? What do we need to fix? We can't just slap a bandaid on that because that's yeah. only going to come back to bite you later on when you're catastrophically injured instead of you had this little warning sign early on that you needed to listen to and, and address that yeah. thing. And even as far as like, 
injury prevention aside, like even as far as performance goes, if you're limited by your core, right, you're always going to be limited by your core if you don't mm-hmm. train it, right? So you're you're putting a ceiling on how much weight you can actually move because even if your legs get strong enough to squat 325 for the first time, if your core isn't strong enough, then you're not going to be able to do it. You're just going to collapse under the weight. Mm-hmm. So you need to like train the whole package to get those higher levels of performance. Yeah. I had to relearn how to how to breathe and brace yeah. to properly like I hate using the word activate, but like properly activate my core. Yeah. Um I have a tendency to like lordosis, hyperextend my low back, mm-hmm. spill forward. So I was always like, oh, like tighten your abs, pull your belly button in, and then neglecting like the 360 degrees of pressure that there should be, particularly like out the sides. So then I would have these like um, hip shifts up and down, mm-hmm. like horizontal hip shifts up and down. And then I would always have back pain on one side. And so I had to learn how to like take that big breath in and then blow it down into my belly and make like a big barrel basically and then hold that for like heavy squats and yeah. deadlifts and stuff. Um, I avoided deadlifting for years because it, it always just lit up my back. I've like only recently in the last year or two been able to actually like deadlift properly without pain. And it's because I took a huge step back yeah. and, you know, dug into my movement and had to figure out what was going on yeah. and why I had to relearn how to breathe and lift basically. So we did the Stu McGill um, back health mm-hmm. like four day seminar a couple of years ago. And the thing that they talk about with bracing your core is like, imagine you have like hands on your sides and you're trying to like push out against those hands, right? Mm -hmm. So often people focus on the front because that's what they can see. That's what they can feel. But you need to think about the sides as well. So you're trying to like clench, like somebody's going to punch you in the stomach, but then push out against somebody's hands Mm -hmm. on your waist, right? And if you can kind of get that full surround, um, yeah, pressure in all directions. Yeah, you're going to be way more stable through your core. And then as far as like, Okay, so let's say you want to make a change. You want to like get off the belt. Again, you pull back on your weights, but then you can start to do some accessory stuff to sort of like rebuild. And you don't do that with sit-ups. You do it with like static movements, right? Mm-hmm. You want your core to be strong when you're, you're upright because that's how your spine should mostly be. Um, so you want to need to do like planks and like side planks, any kind of like rack holds or whatever, which we've been trying to do, um, more of lately, farmer carries, farmer carries, anything where you're upright and you can clench and hold and just maintain that, that core stability, Mm -hmm. um, under load. And, you know, Stu talks about like dealing with people that are like one, you know, injury short of back surgery, like they're erect and he Mm -hmm. doesn't have them do any kind of loading at all. It's all just like you know, knee planks and like super mm-hmm. modified stuff. He likes the term proximal stiffness. So proximal means towards the center. Distal means away. Yeah. Proximal stiffness. Proximal stiffness creates distal power, right. basically. And that applies to everything. Like you yeah. want to throw a baseball really far. You want to do a high jump. Like you want to throw a punch. Like you need proximal stiffness yeah. to extend power. Um, and then on that note, because the the way to brace properly is to create 360 degrees of stiffness around your core, if you wear a belt improperly, you're also taking away from that. So when you crank the belt up super tight and you look like the stuffed sausage, you can't like you, you can't create the tension against it. It needs to be tight at a point where you create that stiffness first yeah. and then tighten the belt to that level. And then you, you the belt is just like sort of one more layer of abs on top of what you've already built. Right. It's not just a in place of your abs because that's not going to help anything. Yeah. So you have to be able to do it yourself first. And then you get to layer on one little extra yeah. benefit. Yeah. So you need to spend a lot of time 
training without it. Yeah. So back up the weights, work on your core stability, use it when it's going to like help you when you need it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but honestly, if there are certain movements that you can't do without a belt, like take a break from those movements, mm -hmm. figure out why they're bothering it and, you know, make the long-term, uh, goal to like fix it so that it doesn't hurt. There's like hardly any situations in a wad, like in the conditioning workout intensity kind of thing yeah. where I would say it's appropriate to wear a belt. Yeah. I'd say over 90%. I did. I've said that once in a podcast before. And then I corrected myself with, I think it was the workout Holly man that has yeah. 30 heavy power cleans. I was like, this would be the one exception. This is the workout where I would put a belt on because yeah. you're doing 30 power cleans at 155 for the girls. It's 225 and for the it's guys. combined with handstand pushups, which if you're kipping them can be, oh, that's a lot of, uh, back movement. People have a tendency to hyperextend. Yeah. And then with wall balls as well. So it's a tough combination. Yeah. And honestly, it's, it's one of those workouts where it's like, it's fun to push a heavier weight than you otherwise normally would. Cause mm -hmm. it's only one clean at a time. And you yeah. know, a guy like Frazier that can clean 300 and whatever pounds, like for him, that one clean is nothing for me. It's like a big clean. Yeah. But that's one of those ones where I kind of push it a little bit on the weight. Yeah. So I'll wear a, a belt for that one as well. Yeah. So a belt has its purpose save it. Yeah. Like it's special. It's a special occasion. It's a treat yourself kind of thing. Yep. You need to spend, think of it like, so we talk about training versus testing. Yep. Belts are for testing, no belt for training. For and sure. part of what you're training is your ability to create proximal stiffness in your core. Yeah. Um, let's talk about all the tech, Kay. the wearables, the gadgets, the gadgets, the, the doodads. doodads. Let's start with uh, jinx. Let's start with uh, heart rate monitors. Yeah. I proposed this question to you in our kitchen not that long ago. Mm -hmm. Can you think of a beneficial reason to wear a heart rate monitor in CrossFit? Yes. And my answer was only one. And that is for somebody that has a legitimate, like serious heart condition mm -hmm. or somebody who has been warned that, you know, they need to get in shape or they're going to die and they're just brand new starting out and the doctor wants to make sure that they're not like overdoing it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So for medical reasons, yes. Yeah. We had a member that had a heart attack and then came back and wore a heart rate monitor under the, the guidance of his doctor for yep. that exact reason. So yes, in that case, it has a, a very legitimate medical purpose. Um, otherwise I don't see a good reason yeah. to wear a heart rate monitor other than to look at it and go neat. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> like I wear an aura ring all the time. It does track continuous heart rate. Now the new version of it does sometimes after a workout, I'll look and I'll go, Oh, cool. Like how high I got or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's about it. Heart rate is a very weak correlate to intensity. Mm -hmm. It's a correlate to intensity. It's not intensity in itself. Right. Because you can jack your heart rate up sitting still. Yeah. You get and scared. You get scared. <gasps> yeah. Um, you can sit in a sauna and your heart rate will go up very high. Yeah. Like there's all kinds of reasons that your heart rate goes up. It doesn't necessarily reflect intensity. Yeah. Um, so it's a correlate to intensity. It's not the thing itself. I absolutely would never, never wear a heart rate monitor if you're going to change your pace in a workout because of what it says. Right. So if you're going to let, I call them the tiny dictators. If you've got a tiny dictator on your wrist, you need to put that thing away. If you're, and I, I always use this story. I ran the rock and roll half marathon in Vegas one year, long time ago. It's a, a super ago. <laughs> fun race. There's a lot going on and there's bands playing and there's a run through wedding chapel and everything. So I was just like really pumped up and really excited. My average heart rate was like 187 for over two hours. Mm -hmm. 
but I, which is very high, like that's way outside of what should have, what I should have been running at according to the charts, but I was fine. Yeah. I, I ran fine. I finished fine. I didn't bonk. I didn't slow down. I you didn't die. I didn't die. Nothing bad happened. But if I had been letting the tiny dictator tell me what to do, I would have slowed down, mm-hmm. but I didn't need to slow down. I yeah. was fine. So I knew myself better than the tiny dictator knew me. Yeah. So I knew how I felt and I knew what pace I could hold on to. And I didn't care what that thing said. But when I looked after, I was like, oh, dang. <laughs> like that, was, that was really high for a really long time. Yeah. So um, if you're wearing a heart rate monitor and you're watching it and you're telling yourself to slow down, take that thing off. Don't do that. Get better at knowing yourself. No yeah. little gadget is going to know you better than you know yourself. Yeah. It's similar, and in my opinion, similar to like, weightlifting in front of a mirror you know (laughs) like if you rely on the mirror to tell whether you're moving well or not you're doing it wrong you need to like learn to feel how to move well right Mm -hmm. um which is like one of the many reasons we don't have mirrors in the gym they're handy to have once in a while when you need like a spot check or whatever to see if you're doing something properly but you should never be reliant on it you know Mm -hmm. you just gotta like learn your learn yourself Mm -hmm. If you like nerding out on data, which you guys all know I do, of course. Um, just like look at it after. Yeah. Look at it after. And sometimes that's fun to see. You're like, oh, there's every interval or there's every time I finish my set of thrusters and you see it going up and down. It's just neat to yep. look at. I, you know, that's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just don't let it dictate um, changes in pace. Yeah. Um, sleep trackers. Mm-hmm. That's a, a big one lately. Yeah. So whoop, whoop. aura. Some of the Apple watches and Fitbits now are doing sleep. So they'll use algorithms to estimate your amount of light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep. Most of them will do HRV, heart rate variability, with a higher HRV number being reflective of of good balance in your autonomic nervous system, good balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. Low HRV is generally regarded as a sign of um, under-recovering. So things that suppress your HRV is is training too much, um, a processed food diet, poor sleep, and alcohol. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Damn it. Damn it. Alcohol wrecks everything. Um, so the benefits of the sleep trackers are just like accountability. Yeah. You know, where you're just like, again, if you kind of keep score, it makes you be like, oh, like I should have gone to bed earlier. I should have yeah. turned the light off or I should have whatever. You're like, I didn't get my eight hours. And then facing the reality if you make decisions like going out for a bunch of drinks and then you look in the morning and you're like, you know, you feel like crap, right? Mm-hmm. You know that. But when you really look at the data and you're like, oh man, what did I do to my body? And you see that your, you know, HRV is just in the toilet and you got no REM sleep. And it's like the explanation for why you feel like garbage. So yeah. it's just that extra little bit of accountability. Yeah. So definitely benefits to that. I think sleep is great. And I think people need to, to prioritize sleep more. So if a little, gadget helps you prioritize your sleep. Awesome. Yeah. What I would not ever do with those things. Most of them like whoop and aura. And I've had both of those. They give you like a recovery score and it tells you the, like, are you in the green zone or the red zone? And their whole marketing shtick is like, we're going to tell you what days you should train hard and mm-hmm. you're going to use our algorithm to decide when you need a rest day. <laughs> when I first had my whoop, cause I like to nerd out on data every morning for like six months, I have a spreadsheet somewhere. I designed my own little, um, kind of app thing where I would input my data every morning and it was such an <laughs> input into a spreadsheet where I would rate my subjective measurement of how good I felt that morning, how recovered I felt. Mm-hmm. And then I would look at the whoop app and see what they said I felt like. And I tracked both of those things. 
And those things overlapped about 20% of the time, which means that little thing was 80% inaccurate right. to how I felt. So it was not doing a good job yeah. of estimating what days I was going to feel good and what days I was going to feel bad. Yeah. So with, with people's schedules, like if you are the type of person where you get to work out Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and that's it. And you're relying on your, you know, HRV monitor. Mm -hmm. And on Wednesday you wake up and it's like, oh, not a good day to work out. And you're like, okay, cool. I'm not going to work out today. Then now you've only worked out Monday, Friday, you know, it's yep. like, even if you're not feeling great, if you like don't feel awesome, you can still go and do something at the gym. We've talked in previous podcasts about like, you know, pick a day where you're going to try really hard and pick a day where you're just going to like move and just like do it to feel good and mm -hmm. like scale the hell out of it as needed. Work you on can, technique. Yeah. You can do something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't make your training decisions based on their little algorithms of what they say. Cause again, just like the heart rate monitor, no little algorithm is going to know you better than you know yourself. Yeah. And the accuracy of these little doodaddy gadgets to measure HRV and all your different, um, stages of sleep and stuff isn't like a hundred percent accurate mm -hmm. yet. So the most accurate thing is your own internal perception of how you feel. And if like, if you're not good at that, just get to know yourself better. For sure. You don't need to again, live under the tiny dictator. And I will say though, of all of the things that I've geeked out on tracking, the one that correlates the best to how I feel is body temperature. Yeah. So I like aura as my preference. I said, I've worn whoop and aura. Um, I picked aura because they do body temperature. Right. And so of all the other things, type of sleep, length of sleep, HRV, resting heart rate, whatever, Body temperature is the one that tracks that can give me the little red flag. If my body temperature is elevated for a couple of days, I'm probably getting sick or, you know, from a female menstrual cycle perspective, the point in the month where my body temperature is higher is when I'm going to feel like shit right. <laughs> and I'm going to eat a lot and want to shop and probably pick a fight with you for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> and I go stay in a hotel. For <laughs> just kidding. It's not that, that bad. bad. It's not that bad. Um, but then I just, I know that's the day where I'm like, okay, my body temperature is elevated for one of two major reasons. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have some, I'm going to feel like shit when I work out. So yeah. I just lower my expectations. I still work out usually. Yeah. I just, ugh, sometimes I don't even start the clock. Sometimes I don't keep score. I just for move, sure. just do some stuff. Uh, but I definitely like lower my effort and expectations around that time. And we're mostly talking about average CrossFitters, but even for a CrossFit games athlete, right? They tend to like really focus on these types of things. Mm-hmm. If you, if your, your HRV monitor tells you you're having an off day and you just do nothing, like that's not good because you might show up the first day of the CrossFit games and feel like shit. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't spent any time training while you feel like shit, like you're screwed, you're going to underperform. Whereas if you've kind of like powered through it and like you said, like use this as an opportunity to work on something, mm -hmm. at least you've got that experience, you know, not everybody's going to feel hundred percent on game day. So sometimes you need yeah. to put some prep work in. After I had Dash, I definitely had to like learn that lesson. I would kept like waiting to like, oh, like I was waiting for a day when I felt good to work mm. out. And then I was like, oh, I have a newborn baby. I'm just <laughs> never going to feel good. And yeah. so if I wait for some magical years. perfect day, I'm never going to work out again. And I, I act, went a long period of time without working out much after he was born and then had to shift my mindset to be like, nope, don't wait for perfection. Don't yeah. like sabotage yourself with some perfectionist thing. Just do it, even yep. if it's not the best or the PR or the greatest training session ever. It's yep. better than nothing. Every every situation like that is an opportunity to do something. Mm -hmm. You know, you can still do something. Aura and I opted in and contributed my data to it. They published, I think, two phases of a study where they tracked like all the different things that Aura tracks: resting heart rate, temperature, HRV, and then tracked when people got COVID. Oh yeah, and they could predict when people were getting COVID based on 
body temperature being the strongest predictor before people felt otherwise symptomatic. Hmm. So that was interesting. And when I had COVID in January, it was like, my temperature was yeah. like way high. And I was like, oh, better do the rapid test. I'm pretty sure I know what this is. You know? um, so it can be valuable for like an early indicator of some of those things. Um, Glucose monitors. Yeah. We did a little experiment with that recently. Yeah. We had, what, about 30 people in the gym wearing the glucose monitors. Yep. Definitely cool. Uh, and I was very pumped that so many people were game to geek out on mm-hmm. blood glucose with me. So the utility there, you can't hide from the truth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're like, oh, I just, I just ate one little cookie. It's just one little donut. And then you have to look at what is happening internally. You're like, shit. <laughs> you, know? you know what the loophole is? Those things will only track for like eight hours or so. So you just have to go longer than eight hours with scanning your thing. And then you can just delete that. You just conveniently lost the data. The Libra 2.0 doesn't let you do that. Oh, it continuously updates. Which get people to use those ones all the time. Okay. Um, so yes, from again, accountability, um, being honest with yourself. Yeah. Um, people are very good at fooling themselves. For sure. Into thinking that like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just one bite. Oh, whatever. Um, people learned some interesting things about how much stress affects their physiology. Yep. Independent of when they'd eaten, if they were stressed out or, um, whatever, and saw big glucose spikes not related to like physical activity or food. Yep. Um, pretty much everybody saw glucose go up when they worked at intensity, which is in that situation, a good thing because it means the fuel you needed was available to you. Yep. And it's not risky in that situation because, it's going somewhere to get used. It's going to your muscles. Mm -hmm. Your muscles are your greatest organ of glucose disposal. And when you're working at intensity, you make them like become this like super mop. They just like suck up all this sugar out of your bloodstream. So you would see a very quick correction. It doesn't go high and stay high. Um, The limitations of a glucose monitor, you could, if you have good insulin sensitivity, be maintaining normal glycemia for quite a number of years Um, I guess that's not good insulin sensitivity. You could be on the road to chronic disease, but still having normal glucose for quite a number of years before it would become pathological. So it would just be taking an increasingly high amount of insulin to keep your glucose within range. Um, so the glucose monitor by itself is not necessarily a good reflection of insulin sensitivity or insulin levels in the blood. Right. Um, for that, you would want to request a fasting insulin test from your doctor. So if you have high fasting insulin, but normal glycemia, you're on the road to diabetes. You have prediabetes. Right. And it will, you don't have diabetes yet, but you will. Right. Soon enough. So it tells you a bit, but it, the glucose monitor, but it doesn't tell you the whole picture. Yeah. So for sure, if you have um, dysglycemia, like wacky blood sugar, you're definitely ill yeah. already. You're definitely already sick, but just because you have normal glucose doesn't necessarily mean you're in the clear. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the condition goes one way, but not the other. Yeah. And one of the other things that we saw in our little challenge was because people were posting up their numbers and stuff and a it's such a like individualized thing. Like your normal glucose might be slightly different than mine. And if you start comparing to other people and freaking <laughs> out about not having your, having your number at three and not two or whatever, you know, it's like that can be a little bit bad, you know, like yeah. you don't need to obsess over it. You just need to like more look at the trends and look at how you're affected by different, you know, foods or exercise or whatever. That was not something I anticipated ahead of time, <laughs> but I probably should have that people would get competitive about yeah. their glucose. <laughs> 
you throw a, a measurable thing into a group of CrossFitters, they're going to get competitive about yeah. it. I should have anticipated that that would happen and kind of sure. got out ahead of that. Um, but, you know, the, the glucose peak when people were working at intensity and they would go, what did yours go to? Mine went to nine. Mine went to 9.5. <laughs> Guys, it doesn't matter. Or people would get would like weirded out like my average glucose is five and yours is 3.7 like am i ill it's like no guys it's a range like yeah. we're all normal and if anything stressing about it is making it worse yeah so, no kidding um yeah you don't have to like don't get stressed out about it don't make it competitive between yeah. individuals if we learn one thing through that challenge is that there was a, a high degree of variability for sure between individuals yeah and everybody's basically pretty healthy yeah um step counters yeah kind of goes back in with you know your various or a Fitbit, yep. whatever. Something else that people can get very competitive with. Yes. <laughs> so let's do the positive first. Definitely more general daily movement is good. Absolutely. Move around. And really what that is, is just don't spend so much time sitting. Yeah. So if it's a, an accountability thing, just like a lot of the others, you mm-hmm. know, if it's like four hours before bed and you look at your little thing and it says, oh, you've only had 3000 steps today. It's like, okay, time to go for a walk or time to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think the most beneficial is lots of general daily movement, like interspersed throughout your day, rather than I sat for eight hours straight and for then sure. I walked 5k. Yeah. That doesn't really benefit you nearly as much as if you just avoided prolonged periods of sitting. Yeah. So if a little buzz on your wrist, oh, you've been sitting for an hour, time to get up and move around. If that gets you off your butt, cool. Um, we have seen people get competitive <laughs> about their stuff. Um, is it one of them Fitbit or something allows you to like link yourself up with other people and you can have like a little leaderboard. And, um, so, you know, it gets a little bit, people get a little crazy about yeah. it. The author, David Sedaris, one of his books, I can't remember which one he has a whole chapter on like getting obsessed with his Fitbit to the point he walks like 60,000 steps a day. <laughs> and he's a very hilarious writer and his take on the whole thing and how it comes to just like rule his whole world is very <laughs> hilarious. I definitely, yeah. I love his books. He's great for that. So moving around more. Great. Yep. Get outside. Great. Don't obsess. Yeah. But don't like get obsessive about it. Yep. Um, don't get competitive about it. Yeah. We were, um, up at a lake one time and there's some other people there. We didn't know. <laughs> and this lady's sitting there at the end of the night doing like this, like shaking her arm behind her head. If you're just listening. And we're like, what the fuck's going on? She's like, ah, I'm trying to hit my steps for the day. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> You're sitting in a chair and waving your arm around. But if you feel validated that now that thing says 10,000, yeah. I think you've missed the point. Cheating the system. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, walking is great. I feel like yeah. at some point we should like we could do a whole podcast about walking. And While walking. While walking. Maybe we should do yeah. that. That would be funny. That'd be hard to carry all this gear. With us. <laughs> <laughs> Get our steps in. Um, there's a, a super common point of confusion I see out there all the time. People that maintain a healthy body weight tend to walk more. They yeah. tend to take more than 10,000 steps a day. So they, they generally move around more. People will interpret that as causal, meaning that the walking is making them maintain their body weight instead of flipping the order of causality the other way, which is actually how it works is that people that are lean have more energy available to do general daily activities because we know this because if you take an overweight person and you make them walk more, it doesn't make them lose weight. I was looking at um, a paper just the other day, two groups of people, they had them on a low fat, but ad libitum diet. So they could eat as much as they wanted, but they were on low fat foods. 
one group walked 2.5 hours a week. The other group had no prescription for walking. No difference in the weight loss mm. is the same. So walking is great for many things, but weight loss isn't one of them, yeah. unfortunately. Um, so people think like, you'll see articles all the time. Oh, well, if you burn approximately, you know, 300 calories walking this far, and if you walked this far every day, you would lose X number of pounds in a week. Sorry, no, you don't. Yeah. The research doesn't support that. doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's great for diet. mental health, great for cardiovascular health, you know, get your vitamin D, lots of benefits. Yeah. But weight loss is one of It's absolutely worth it if somebody is not ready for exercise yet. They're like quite unhealthy, like absolutely go for walks. That's mm-hmm. a great starting point or like, you know, older people that can't really do much else. Helps you manage your glucose. Yeah, it's Good great. There's p- tons of benefits to it. Mm-hmm. But if you want to lose weight, it's nutrition. It's not yeah. just walking. Yeah, for sure. Anything else we want to talk about in terms of performance enhancers? I think so. That's all the gadgets I can think of. Yeah. So I think overall theme, just because a little bit is beneficial doesn't mean a lot all the time. Yeah. It's good. There's a point of diminishing marginal returns. For sure. Be selective. Be calculating in how you use your caffeine, creatine, carbs, belts. Yeah. There's in benefit all- in tracking data. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. What were you going to say? I was going to say in all of these things, the main thing is the effort you're putting in. All the little gadgets and helpers along the way only help to, you know, raise up the the effort that you're putting in. But mm-hmm. that is the most important part. Yeah. Gadgets are good for accountability and honesty, yeah. but you can't let them be your little tiny dictators. Gotta get tiny it. dictator. I think it's Brian McKenzie has a great book called Unplugged. He was the CrossFit endurance guy. So a CrossFitter, but like heavy on the running, yeah. ultra running endurance side of things. Um, and so like the... The tiny dictators are huge in that world. He wrote yeah. a whole book called Unplugged. It's really good about like the overarching theme being like reconnect with your inner state, mm-hmm. know yourself better rather than relying on things that don't know you nearly as well as you should know yourself. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Let's see you in the next one. See you there.